Hello, welcome to Vet Talk, the veterinary podcast. Today we are going to discuss small animal vaccinations. Wait, what? We're still on vaccines? Well, we covered the equine vaccinations, then we talked about rabies, which is for large and small animals. But we still have to discuss small animal vaccinations. And this is where I will talk about immunity, and thankfully talk a little bit more about large animals. Can you see I'm a fan of the large animals? In horses, cattle, sheep, goats, dogs, and cats, there is a thing called passive transfer of immunity. This is where the mother's first milk, sometimes we call it the colostrum, is nursed by the baby, and this gives that baby protection from all the bad things in the world. Granted, this protection is only there if the mother was making antibodies to the bad things in the world in the first place. The mother had to be exposed to the diseases at least a month before the birth of this baby. This is why vaccinating expecting animals is important, because it protects the mother and baby. What the mother actually passes to the baby is called an immunoglobulin. If you are in an immunology class, GAMED, G-A-M-E-D, should help you remember the different type of immunoglobulins. In our large animal friends, this protection from the mother gets to the baby through the colostrum, 100%. I have treated many calves which have not received their colostrum. These animals are behind from the start in life and often are poor doers for a good while, being sickly and not gaining a lot of weight because they are busy fighting off the world which they are being exposed to. Instead of focusing on growing, they are having to focus on fighting off infection, which a young immune system just doesn't do well. Babies may not get this protection of the colostrum for a few reasons. The most common I see is the mother dies or is not producing milk. Also, the gut of the baby changes within the first 24 to 48 hours. So after that time period, even if the baby receives its colostrum, it cannot absorb the colostrum. Cattle have about 48 hours to get the colostrum in them. We say horses have about 24 hours, but honestly, it's really only about 18 hours to get this colostrum in them. Thankfully, with horses, we can give them hyperimmune plasma. That's basically motherly protection directly into the vein after that 18-hour period has elapsed. How do we know the baby did not get its protection? We have blood tests to check to see if the mother did not pass on its immunity. One thing we must remember, too, is this colostral protection is for a limited time. It's kind of like a tetanus antitoxin we talked about a few episodes ago. It provides protection immediately from the world, but does not provide any lasting protection. Typically, unlike the antitoxin we give, this protection from the colostrum lasts a few months, allowing the baby to thrive before it has to fight off the world by itself. Dogs and cats are set up a little differently. They can get a little protection from their mother before birth. Unlike humans, who get 100% of their immunoglobulin protection before birth, Dogs and cats get closer to 5 to 10%. So dogs and cats have a slight advantage over cattle and horses who get absolutely no immune protection in the womb. Stingy cows. Still, carnivores need colostrum in the first 48 hours or so. I bet you think I've gone on a big tangent right now because I didn't really want to talk about vaccines anymore. Well, not really. Whether in large or small animals, this passive protection prevents our vaccines from working. So we have to schedule our initial vaccines for when this passive protection ends. 
Hence, in each animal, we have times in which we vaccinate a young animal to make sure it is protected. This time varies for different species and specific diseases. I start many vaccinations for foals around six months of age. In puppies and kittens, we usually do three rounds of vaccinations over three months. Why we do so many? Because we have an idea when passive transfer ends, but it is unique for each animal. Also, as we said, the passive protection prevents the vaccines from working. So one animal's protection might end at 6 weeks of life, and one might end at 12 weeks of life. How do we compensate for this? We do that series of vaccines that we mentioned. That way, as we vaccinate, the mother's protection is naturally going down, and our vaccine protection is going to go up with each vaccination. We know, even with the best protection from the mother, a puppy will lose its protection by the end of when we are done with our vaccine series. Doing this series will protect the ones that have no mother's protection and not hurt the puppies that do have the mother's protection. It's kind of just like giving water. So at the end of our vaccination protocol, we have a bunch of happy and healthy puppies and kittens which have no mother's protection but is now fully protected by our vaccines. Go science. A lot of people ask me, can I take my puppy to the dog park while I'm getting my vaccines? That's a definite no-no. We don't really know the immune status of most puppies, so I say keep them away from large groups of other dogs until we have completed the vaccines. That way we know they have protection from the diseases that are out there. For your information, I have never had anyone ask me, but there's always someone in the room that comes up with a question like this, can they take their kitten or cat to the cat park? I don't know of any cat parks out there, but the same principles apply. Don't take an unvaccinated animal or an animal in the process of being vaccinated to a dog park or a cat park. With puppies and kittens, most veterinarians will follow something very similar to what I will do. I start with vaccination at about six to eight weeks of age and then do two more doses of the vaccinations, each about a month apart. At the last round of vaccinations, I'll give the rabies and will hopefully spay or neuter the puppy or kitten at that time. Then you are pretty much set up for your yearly visits. Now I guess we have to go through the individual vaccines that dogs and cats get. This may be a little bit laborious, but it's probably some good information for you so you can know what your animals are being vaccinated for and why it's important to have these vaccines. We talked about rabies in the last episode and all its significance. Again, each state has different laws regarding rabies, so you're going to have to check on that. But in Kentucky, dogs and cats get a one-year vaccine, and then the following they can get a three-year vaccine, which means that the three-year vaccine lasts three years. Why does one vaccine last a year and the other three? Pretty simply stated, quality. The one-year vaccines just are not produced to be as good, and reflecting that are less expensive. Here's what I do in my clinic, and this may not be done universally. I only give the three-year vaccine, but I label it as the one-year vaccine to go along with state laws. If you remember from our discussion last time with JT, I feel within a year we need to get two doses of rabies in an animal to prevent it from coming down with this disease. I label the three-year as a one-year the first time because it's state law, and I want people back within a year to be sure to get the follow-up second vaccine. And worry not, I eat the extra price of the better quality three-year vaccine when I label it as a one-year vaccine. 
I feel it's worth it to get that extra protection on board early in case for some reason the animal does not make it back to the veterinarian. The state will only recognize the one-year vaccine, but doesn't have a problem if we vaccinate with a higher quality product in its place. I don't recommend skimping on that second vaccine because of the greater protection two vaccines gives, but I want to help wherever I can and provide greater protection if possible. So I give my one-year vaccine initially. I have air quotes there in case you didn't see them. And then I move next year to the three-year vaccination protocol. You get your certificate proving your animal had the rabies vaccine and you're good to go. A vaccine I give yearly, after its initial puppy series, is the canine distemper. It's a combination vaccine with many brand names, which can contain many different combinations of vaccinations. The brand I carry contains the diseases canine distemper virus, canine parainfluenza virus, canine adenovirus type 2, which also protects from type 1, and parvovirus. To cover that in brief, distemper is a virus that can cause anything from a fever to neurologic signs or respiratory signs or gastrointestinal signs. Basically, it causes all sorts of signs. Um, canine parainfluenza typically causes a respiratory disease, and canine adenovirus type 2 causes a hepatitis or a liver disease. Parvovirus is likely the most dreaded of these viruses that the combo vaccine protects for. This is a disease that attacks rapidly growing cells in a young puppy. This means it attacks the bone marrow, which provides the cells that fight off infection, and it attacks the rapidly growing cells in the gastrointestinal tract, where these cells should be bringing in nutrients into the body. With this disease, animals can't fight off infection or get nutrition in the body, and I see many dogs die who are unvaccinated for this disease. This will definitely be a disease we talk about more in depth in the future. But for now, vaccinate for this disease. Leptospirosis. Lepto, as I usually cause it, can cause kidney and liver disease, among a few other problems. Lepto is something that can cause an allergic reaction in certain dogs and is in many combination vaccines. I tend to carry a vaccination that doesn't have this because of the reactions I've seen from it. I'm often treating in a mobile situation, and I just don't want to risk the health and safety of a dog when I don't have a full clinic at my disposal to treat a severe reaction. So this is a vaccine, because of the risk in my practice, I don't push to give. Many do give it, and I have no problem with that, so rely on what your veterinarian recommends for this vaccine, as they will know the animals more prone to reacting poorly to it, and they will know what steps they will have available to them to treat an allergic reaction. Bordetella. This is a vaccine that's not in one of the combination vaccines, and you may have seen it given in the nose or the mouth of your dog. It can also be given as an injection under the skin of your dog in certain formulations. This is what many people refer to as the kennel cough vaccine, which is a disease that causes a very annoying deep cough in dogs. Many boarding facilities require this vaccine to allow a dog to board there. I recommend it if someone is going to a kennel for boarding or a place where a large group of dogs will be, like the dog park. I don't usually recommend it for dogs that may only meet their neighbors on a walk around the block. I do have a few problems with this vaccine. 
first, many clients who receive it forget about getting it updated until the last minute. So I've seen dogs come into the clinic, get the vaccine, and are rushed to the boarding facilities so clients can go on their vacation. We know vaccines take time to work, so I doubt we are getting the protection we need in this situation. I wish boarding facilities required the vaccine at least two weeks before boarding so the vaccine has time to work. Second, most of my clients live in the country and don't board their dogs. The dogs are just not exposed to large groups of other dogs. So this vaccine has never been a big seller in my practice. However, in more urban areas, a case can be made for it. So that pretty much covers our dog vaccines. The rabies and the distemper combo are the two I think every dog should have. The other vaccinations you can discuss with your veterinarian for your specific dog and their specific lifestyle. Now on to our feline friends. I won't bother you with another long discussion about rabies, but cats can get rabies too, so I recommend vaccinating them. The same criteria as the dogs apply about a one-year and a three-year vaccine. Cats also have a combination vaccine. The vaccine I carry contains vaccinations for rhinotracheitis, calicivirus, chlamydia, and panleukopenia. Rhinotracheitis is a respiratory disease. It's a herpes virus. I see a lot of cats with upper respiratory infections, and in stray clouders, bonus points to those of you out there who knew a clouder is a group of cats and not a New England delicacy, though I do like clam chowder, and I'm hungry now. Anyway, this likely attributes to many of these infections. I see many kittens come in with upper respiratory tract infections, and even though many things can cause the runny nose and goopy eyes that I see, when you vaccinate for rhinotracheitis, this may eliminate at least one way for that to occur in cats. The calicivirus also has a lot of signs with the respiratory tract, like the herpes virus or rhinotracheitis, but can sometimes cause ulcers on the mouth as well. Chlamydia is also a vaccine in the combo that protects against another upper respiratory disease. The difference with chlamydia is instead of a virus, is a bacteria. The vaccine often does not provide complete protection, but will lessen the severity of an infection. Lastly, in the combination vaccine, panleukopenia. This is not to be confused with feline leukemia virus, which we will talk about next. Feline panleukopenia, also known as feline distemper, is more closely related to a parvovirus and acts more like it than showing the neurologic signs that dogs may when they get a distemper virus. It can't be passed to dogs, though. Feline leukemia. The next vaccine which I will vaccinate for is feline leukemia. This will certainly get its own episode in the future. For now, I vaccinate for it for any cat that goes outdoors. If your cat is 100% guaranteed indoors, I won't give the vaccine. But most people can't guarantee their cats don't go for a stroll every now and again. So I recommend this vaccine a lot. Feline leukemia is an immunosuppressive virus. One of my old teachers is going to yell at me when she hears this, but the simplest way of describing it, it is feline AIDS. It cannot be transmitted to people, and it is not AIDS, but the effects are similar, so it is easy for people to grasp the severity of the disease when this comparison is made. Overall, with cats, I recommend every cat be vaccinated for rabies and with a feline combination vaccine. The feline leukemia virus is vaccinated for on a case-by-case -case basis. 
Thanks for listening again. I'm happy we have finally gotten through all the vaccinations. Next time we can talk a little bit more in depth about specifics of veterinary medicine.